Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guests this week are Piran and Susanna Bear. Welcome, Piran and Susanna. Hi, Rick. How are you? Good. It's good to see you both. I was very pleasantly surprised when I started to read your book, Follow Your Heart. Usually I don't have a chance to read the book of the person I'm going to interview until the, the week before I interview them, so I didn't know what to expect, but immediately I thought, whoa, this is a very mature teaching, a very mature spiritual understanding. And uh, so I didn't even get a chance to finish the book. I read about a third of it, but I really found it enjoyable as far as I got. And the reason I thank you. Yeah, and the reason I call it mature, and and the reason I enjoyed it is a reason for which I often get flack from people, and that is that you know I, I often talk about there being stages of development and levels of experience and levels of understanding and so on and so forth. And people who have a sort of a conceptual understanding of non-duality don't like talk of stages and levels you know they feel well it's one homogeneous wholeness you know so therefore how could there be stages and levels but experientially practically speaking one grows into the experience of that wholeness in through stages through phases so, am i right that's right that's how we see it we even have a book about these stages our third book follow your heart delineates the nine steps uh, that we identify in, in the spiritual path. Well, that's the one I've been reading. Oh, that's the one. Follow your heart. Yeah, yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Right. you're living. See, uh, Rick, I just finished the tour, the Invincible Heart tour, which mm -hmm. we might get into, and I was in Austin, and a good friend of ours, you know, he just discovered uh, unity consciousness, we are all one, and he said, if we are all one, we don't need stages of development. We are right there. Unity right. is right there with you. And I said, well, maybe in our innermost being, but in our everyday consciousness, we are far away from it. Most yeah. of us, you know, the general, the general everyday person, if that would be the case, we would have the golden age happening here, and I said that's what we are actually working toward. And I said there are a lot of different groups who work in their ways about it, and our work is working it from the heart. You know, teach applied meditation because that's where you really can feel, and your life gives you feedback. You know, that is the interesting thing. Life is a feedback system of where you are with your unity consciousness. Right. That's where it's at. If an understanding of unity were the same as the experience, then by the same token, an understanding of food would be the same as eating, and, and we'd solve, <laughs> solve world hunger. All you'd have to do is think of a vegetable, and you'd be, you'd be content. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, today, I think a lot of spiritual work is tied up in eating. You know, instead of practicing meditation, we just finished a five-day retreat in the Berkshires in New, uh, New Lebanon, New York, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. exactly. And it was very interesting, you know, how people start meditation and they like the idea of meditation, but very often just move out of it. That to go really deep into meditation, especially into the feeling parts, you know, where you feel something, uh, that's where people want to run and flee and move mm. away from it. And that's what you do in our meditations, Rick. You know, in our meditations, we move into feelings. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe we need to back up a little bit. I don't know, but... Um, I'd like to talk about that, actually. 
We were at the non-duality conference in San Francisco recently. And that's where we met you. And right. where we met you. I heard one of the speakers there say, if you're feeling emotion, you're not in unity consciousness, you're in duality. Hmm. And I would beg to differ. I would say there is an emotion which is the emotion of unity. And we call that emotion peace. We say that uh, peace is the white light, uh, using that metaphor of emotion. If you bring all the emotions together at the same time, in the same heart, you get a combination of all emotional experience, and that feels like peace. But peace is not the absence of emotion, as this lady was saying. It's rather the combination of all possible experience. That's how we see it. Hmm. With the, the Dalai Lama was here in Tucson a couple of years ago, and we got a chance to speak with him. There was an assemblage of all different kinds of religions. The imam was here, and the leader of the Catholic diocese, and so on. And there were all many. You know, we came as representatives of the heart. And the Dalai Lama was saying, "Well, his aspiration is to experience nothing, the nothingness." You know. And we said our aspiration is to experience the wholeness, the everything. Oh. And he said, "Always oh, the same." <laughs> And I think it is the same at some level of abstraction, but the path to get there is very different. The path to get to nothingness is the path of monastic life, and the path to get to wholeness is the path of total life experience. And uses the heart. And sometimes, I, I think the very same thing can be experienced in different ways. There's a, a talk I heard one time in which Shunyavada, Purnavada was discussed, fullness of emptiness, fullness of fullness, and it was really a re with reference to the same thing, which according to one's orientation to it or cognition of it may seem empty, but perhaps upon closer uh, examination or more intimate under experience is found to be full. Yeah, the same thing happens on an experiential level when you close your eyes in the dark. It seems dark. It seems like there's no light. But as you look further into it, you see that you're surrounded by light. Mm -hmm. There's a light in the darkness. There is no darkness, actually. There's only, there's only, uh, there's even light in the darkness and the, there's sound in the silence and so on. So it's a wonderful confusion. <laughs> so it's like you say, I mean, it might be that someone with a monastic orientation is attracted to the, the, the notion of nothingness, emptiness, but someone with a more Householder orientation or worldly orientation is attracted more to fullness. I don't know. Uh, there are probably exceptions to those generalities, but I like that, and I think I would say in general we should fight our proclivity. The people who are who are by nature attracted to the monastic life should get out of it and experience the wholeness, and the people that are so caught up in their busyness should experience the silence. As Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything. Uh, turn, turn, turn. You know, I have a friend here in town whom I interviewed, Francis Bennett. He's coming. He's come for a visit. And he was a monastic for 30 years in Trappist and Benedictine monasteries. And while he was in there, he was also practicing uh, vipassana and Zen meditation very intensively. And a few years ago, he had this very profound awakening profound non-dual realization which stayed with him and after about a year he began to feel it's time for me to leave you know I should leave this monastery and go out in the world and do something I wouldn't say that his 30 years were inappropriate or wasted in any way that was fine but at a certain stage of his development it, they were no longer it was no longer appropriate see there's those stages again yeah that's absolutely right we go through stages 
when we talk about these stages, Susanna likes to say there's the even-numbered and the odd-numbered steps. So we go, we take one step in wisdom, another step in power. Mm-hmm. Another step in wisdom, another step in power. You want to say something about that, Susanna? Well, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the two of you, and I do fully agree. You know, I think when I started meditation, you know, when I started this meditative path, I had this strong experience, what you would call non-duality. I probably would call it something else. Or maybe I haven't found a name for it yet. And I think that kept me on the path. That was such a powerful experience, but I did my path in life. You know, we had children and we had to work and we had a mortgage. And I do think it affects your life. If you have a mortgage and if you have five children, we have, to, we have no children together, but I have a former marriage and he... And when you have all this and you don't run away and don't go to a monastery, because this is... Rick, what brought us on the path of the heart, and this is where we watch these steps, you know, that there is a progress there. Uh, if you keep meditating, if you applying meditation to your life, that I felt at periods of times, well, yeah, I was in a so-called uneven step. We call them the down steps. It goes deeper and deeper, and you have the feeling, oh, my God, I make no progress. And then comes this successful up step. We actually think... You have to go through nine steps till you have the feeling you are finished where you actually can contribute. I mean, this is what your friend would say. I have to actually go out into life and do something. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is where we talk about, you know, there is a purpose in life. There is something to do. And lots of times, you know, we have friends, they try to solve all their problems with food and yoga and colon cleansing and all this <laughs> and don't have a purpose mm. I'm like why are you cleansing your, pur- uh, your colon so much or why are you eating all this good food probably they would say I need to heal you know I need to heal but I think if one doesn't use anything else you know no inner processes because I do think meditation actually creates a lot of chemistry inside of ourselves you know there's a lot of change is going on on all different levels you know so you could call the mind the emotions the body but you could call it too on the chemistry on the hormones you know and on the all different and even on the you know microcosmic levels of our neurons and all this that's where all the changes happen Mm -hmm. so this is what we experienced and so our diet is not clean our exercise is not there every day you know, and our, we travel a lot, we work odd hours, or way too much, you could say, and we feel very strong, healthy, and alive. And, um, but we do feel these steps, you know, and we do have the ability to help people to guide through those steps, you know, because that's still a whole other level to the work, to be able to identify the steps within yourself, and then to know them so well that one can say, I can help you with those steps. I actually recognize, you know, in this retreat there was a young woman there. And I could say to her, you know, I actually know where you are. And in a way, that's so comforting to somebody who who listens to you that you can say, I know these steps, I'm familiar with it, and I know how to help you through. And it's a question to create the trust. Mm -hmm. 
I think every, everything seems to have its value in its appropriate context. You know, like you said, yoga, diet, exercise, all those things are of value. Uh, oh, but but sometimes people become obsessively reliant on one thing or another without the proper kind of you know balance of other things. I, like for instance, again, my friend Francis, he said you know he's been counseling a lot of people lately, and he said you know most of the people I talk to, they're just so obsessed about sort of like almost narcissistically indulgent about sort of little inner st things going on with them. Uh, most of them would do well to just get out and do some service, you know, go help people. Uh, That's it. You know, that would be the best technique for them. That's it. That's why uh, we stress the sense of purpose so much in our work, that um, the idea is to prepare oneself to be better able to serve. Mm -hmm. So the diet should serve service you know yeah and you can, I've gone through phases where I just was obsessive about my diet you know trying to eat only fruit or doing a lot of fasting you did that too? oh yeah <laughs> I, I like went a whole summer where I was fasting and eating nothing but fruit and you know and then I kind of rubber banded back in the other direction and, and was gorging on all kinds of foods couldn't stop but uh, it, there was just this obsession with the body which was out of out of balance I know yeah. what you mean. I, I had a diet uh, a couple months ago. I was I was just eating the sun. Really? And um, and that <laughs> was really fun. That'll burn your tongue. <laughs> That's right. But That's that, what keeps you eating other things. It doesn't burn your eyes. <laughs> so I would look at the sun for an hour a day, and and I wouldn't have to eat. Huh. Yeah. But, some people uh, in my town have been doing that. It's. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a high, mm. but then then there's the social thing about well you know people get together over food and and then there's the question of like well what's why why does the body have all these wonderful sensations around taste and so on if we're not meant to eat yeah so and could I, you have done that for years on end or you know was it something you could do for a little while but then you really need to get back to we have physical bodies and maybe we need to eat some physical food. I think so. But it's really fascinating to know that we can sustain ourselves on light. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic to know. Yeah. <laughs> now, well, that's who we are. I don't know what it is about the Sufis. Uh, you guys are successors to Hazrat Inayat Khan and Pir Vilayat Inayat Khan in the lineage, lineage of universal Sufism. And uh, I don't know much about Sufism other than listening to Llewellyn Von Lee, whom I think is brilliant, and you guys, uh, you know, reading your book. But it seems that it has a very deep mystical um, orientation. You know, it's uh, profoundly experiential, right down to the core of life. Um, and as far as Sufi practices are concerned, all I've been aware of, and very r tangentially, is the whirling thing. I really don't know much else about it. But, but you say that your, prim you, your primary practice is a meditation practice of some kind. Of heart. Of heart. The primary, primary heart-centered. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we like to pride ourselves that a lot of people talk about the heart and would like to have experiences of the heart. But we can do 40-day retreats on the heart. And, you know, I had Buddhist monks come to my presentations and they say, you know, I have been working for 30 years with the heart, but never, never listen to my heartbeat. Huh. And he said, by listening to your own personal physical heart and feeling that rhythm, 
it changes the whole game of it because, you know, as long as you imagine your heart, you have no pain. Do you see? So, and pain is such a, such a powerful experience of the physical life. You know, just like how Quran says, you know, why do we eat? We are all light beings, really. We can live off the sun, but that way we bypass the life on this physical life. And we didn't have a body before this life, and we won't have a body soon, you know, when we leave this planet and this body. We won't have a body. We, I think we all agree that we will exist before and after. But what is this experience here in the physical body about? Do you see why we are why are we here? What is this phenomenon that the one being is going through through us, through each one of us? And how can we through this physical life contribute through the whole? Me as being the one myself in this physical experience as the one, how do I experience this and how do I contribute to the whole? I think those are the big esoteric questions in there. And, and we think by moving into the heart, and that is the signal that I am in the here and now. I do, we have this judgment, I, I say it out loud, about other meditations, you know, that when you leave your body, you know, and you have to know our teacher, taught us those kinds of meditation. It's not that we are not familiar with them. When we created our school, we changed the meditations because of those very reasons that I mentioned to you earlier, because of having children and mortgage and having to go to work and dealing with the stresses of the physical life. And the question is, how do you live a so-called spiritual life? How do you live the experience of the divine within myself and uh, be totally uh, available to the nitty-gritty, to changing diapers and, and all those kinds of great things. So that, I think that is the challenge. So are you saying that your meditation practice involves literally listening to the heartbeat? Yes. Uh, we're... We're fascinated with this reality that the heart has a tangible signal that it gives as a, as a homing beacon to draw us into it. We can tell when we're, when we're concentrating on the heart, when our attention is placed on the heart, we get feedback from that. I mean, you hear the heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And, and if, we, if we were to imagine our heart without that feedback, how would we know we're not focusing on our liver or our gallbladder or something? You know? So the heart has a signal, and it draws you by going, trying to intensify that signal. We're drawn right into it. It's a homing beacon. You know, and once you experience it, you experience it all the time. We speak here. I feel my heartbeat, and the heartbeat changes. You know, the heartbeat is not something that is all the time the same, and uh, so. It, it sort of regulates you, you know, like when I'm nervous and I feel my heartbeat, it speeds up, I can breathe differently and I have influence on my heart and my strength and my whole system starts working differently if I focus in on there. And you, you learn to do this like as a second nature sort of. You see, so I can go speak publicly and, you know, you feel the nerves, you feel the audience 
and I change my breath, move it into the heart, and my heart starts radiating out. And I, before that, you know, I don't know how people do this who leave their body. <laughs> and, you know, I haven't figured that one out, I guess. What do you mean, people who leave their body? Well, when you leave your body, you don't have that internal signal of the heartbeat. Well, who leaves their body? And, and uh, <laughs> let's, let's get to that. <laughs> All the EOB people, right? The what? Um, the, out of, the, experience oh, mean, of, uh, the experience of being out of body. Like you mean like, astral projection, that kind of thing? Well, the original intention in the science of meditation was to experience what is death. Uh, starting back at the Egyptians and leading into the Hinduism and Vedanta, the experience was what is non-existence? What is it to be free of limitation? You know, the body is temporal, not eternal. It's it's fixed in location. It's not it's not infinite. So the the great appeal was, well, I want to be eternal and infinite, and then therefore I can't be limited to a body and a mind and so on. And uh, and that was the theme for thousands and thousands of years. Um, I studied that method. I studied that method under the in, in my discipleship to Birbalayat, and I got to the point where I could stop my heartbeat, and I could produce delta brain waves, the brain waves of deep sleep. In fact, the experimenter who who measured me said he he found stronger delta waves in me than he sees in deep sleep. But I was awake at the same time. So I learned this method of called samadhi, which comes from Hinduism, which comes from really from the Egyptians. And as I say, the, the, uh, the motivation is to discover a, a, a non-personal reality, which is not limited. But 2,000 years ago or so, things started to change. And the shift was, let's experience what life is like. What's it like to be a human being instead of an angel? What's it like to, to really get into physica physicality? Is it possible to discover the universe in the person? See, that's, and now today we call that the microcosm, that the whole universe exists as the macrocosm exists in the microcosm. But that's a, that's a relatively new idea in the history of meditation. And that's where we are now. And it, finds, it turns out that the core of that is the heart. It's the heart that focuses the infinite into the finite. I would acknowledge that people can use meditation to take refuge in the absolute or take refuge in samadhi to the exclusion of relative concerns. But if approached properly, samadhi is not necessarily an escape because it can be integrated into waking 24-7 experience. In other words, one can ex the, the, the range of one's experience can grow to encompass both the universal and the individual in one wholeness. And, yes. uh, and so re regarding the body, uh, it's not something that you would want to escape from or that you could escape from. It's actually, the, you know, as they say, the temple of the soul. It's the tool by virtue of which this whole journey can be undertaken. Well, you're very modern in your thinking. This is good. Okay, good. <laughs> but I think that I think the ancients, if properly interpreted, at least some of the ancients, had that same understanding. But it could be that those who became the custodians of their teachings distorted them in different ways, and and you know who knows what we ended up with. Um, well, you know, Buddha taught there is no self, even. Right. There's not even a self. So, 
let alone having thinking that the body is is me. And in Hinduism, they say all the time, "This is not my body. This is not my mind. Right? This is not my ego. This is not myself." Well, whose is it? You know, we'd say, <laughs> "No, this is me, and everything else is me too." Right? So it's, yeah. as I say, it's the question of are you looking for nothing or are you looking for everything? The thing is, on some level, all these things are true. But, yeah. but there's, just all, there's always a bigger picture in which the, the opposite is also true. Or, or there's a bigger picture which incorporates all these paradoxes into a larger truth. That's right. But as, you, as we're charged with teaching people off the street, you know, people that come to us that haven't meditated, and then people come to us that have meditated for decades... TM people. Um, and people that have done Vipassana and mindfulness and stuff for a long, long time, and they want the next step. And, and so, you know, we, we, we need to understand how people get to unity. You know, they don't just, it doesn't just wake up. In fact, pe people who have said, well, I just woke up with a unity experience one day. I know a bunch of teachers like that. That happens sometimes, yeah. It's That's, but, it's not, but it's not helpful as a teacher because... Right. You know, then you're hoping that your students wake up on their own, right? <laughs> yeah, it helps to have some systematic thing you can offer. If you can see what the steps are and what the process is, how it changes at each step, mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe we can be helpful to lead people through it a little faster than just when they wake up in the bathtub. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, if, you know, and, and sometimes these awakenings are just, you know, the circumstances are just so... Coincidental. I mean, you might be eating tomato soup and you have an awakening, and it doesn't mean everyone should run out and start eating tomato soup. It, it just happened to be a coincidence. <laughs> right, and also can one hold that state. Right, so, that too. So we identify three steps in that process. The first is, have you, have you, have you ever experienced awakening mm -hmm. spontaneously? The next step is, can you trigger it to happen when you want? And the third step is, can you stay in that state as long as you want to stay in it? Mm -hmm. And could there be a fourth step that it's not a question of coming or going, but that, that, that state, if you want to call it a state, is so grounded, so rooted, that it becomes unshakable? I find that everybody can act like a fool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> we Good have point. that ability. We can fall out of it at a moment if we want to. It's just that we have the ability, once, once we own that state, we have the ability to get back into it at will. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we can get triggered and, act, and act, uh, act like a child. It's just that we don't have to stay there and, and get stuck in it. Yeah, even Lance Armstrong can fall off his bicycle. Um. <laughs> see, uh, see, Rick, you know, I find... Uh, I find your discussions very interesting, and I think they are, uh, you know, they go really to the depth of, you know, of the practitioner, you know, and where the practice can go to. I just, what interests me these days a lot, and this is, you know, what I tried to address in my past tour with the Invincible Heart, is, you know, I have the feeling there is, um, you know, this, this evolution that one could say the whole, the one being is, or the whole universe, or the one is in. And I do think it is, it, it looks like to me from the outer world, and too from the inner world, you know, how one experiences one's own inner stresses and the stresses of the collective, 
uh, that there is a big shift going on. I agree. And uh, what is on my heart very much is how to participate in that shift, in this uh, awakening, in this new awakening of the whole, you know, where it's on the one hand economically and political, but it's on the other hand too spiritual. And so um, I, in, in this tour that I did, it's not completely finished, I, I speak about the new hero, you know, because each time has some individuals uh, that come forth and help to lift the whole to a new place. And um, so I do actually think I'm sort of going, bypassing his certain steps. I do think that in today's time, it won't be one human being that does it. It actually will be a collective, like a group of 100,000 people or even more. Have you, have you heard that expression, the next Buddha is the Sangha? There we go. Yeah. There we yeah. go. You see, and, and I find that spiritually very interesting. And, you know, there are the different religions. Mm -hmm. And I have given up, you know, our, some spiritual teachers talk about the unity of unifying all the religions. I have given up on that a long time. But I do think that spiritual people have something else going on. You know, they don't see so much the boundaries and the belief systems. And my hope is that there is actually will something on, on that sort happen on that level, mm -hmm. where we realize, you know, we all speak. I mean, you go to all different groups of spiritual schools, they speak about the one being. And maybe we could do something together to lift uh, this universe to another level. Yeah. And, and so what I have these four steps in there, you know, this uh, being grateful and uh, being vulnerable and um, create what you love and listen to the voice of your heart so that you feel guidance. And I, I really look to go to the people on the street. You know, one of my backgrounds is street theater. So I really like to go to the people out there. And these kind of four steps, it's like really you can do these four steps without meditation. If you just want to get them fully developed, you need deep meditation. And what I found, what is the hardest step for people, believe it or not, this does not apply to people like you and, you know, people who decide to go to the monastery, but it applies to the everyday person on the street to create what you love. That's the hardest thing? That is the hardest thing for people. People don't know what they love, you know, what do they love to do and people do not know um, they are terribly afraid once they found out what they love to do they are terribly afraid of, of doing that huh. isn't it's, that interesting it, it can be challenging I mean I love doing this but I haven't fully transitioned to it I still have a, a day job you know um, but, but then, then you have figured out what you love to do oh yeah yeah. And and you have crossed the boundaries that you say, I'm doing this on a Saturday morning or whenever you do it, right. I'm going to do this. So there's uh -huh. a strong commitment and an inner thing there. But a lot of people, you know, I think this is, the, this is where I see the big shift happening, you know, because we're really coming out of eons of years of time of people being slaves. Right. See? And that is, I think, where the shift is.
Yeah, there's a... See what I mean? Have you seen the Thrive movie? It's oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We love it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to interview those people in August, and uh, I, as, as I recall, one of the points in the movie was that, you know, in a really more enlightened age, we wouldn't be working. You know, we would all just be doing what we love, and, yeah. and the technologies are there for all the energy we need and the food we need and all that stuff, or they could be there. And so, you know, imagine such a society, because, you know, think of all the, the literal and virtual slavery that has engaged the... The, the whole humanity for so many thousands of years it's like you know pr rather we're primitive <laughs> we're, we're still into it and but yeah. we've accepted it somehow people accept the idea that a third of their income should go to their housing or a half right, right. there's no reason for that most of that money goes to the bank there's no reason for that kind of expense yeah, yeah. but you see it's the, it's the system yeah. that's at fault and so I, I think this is this is an important point about spiritual work is that spiritual work is not self-development it starts with self-development, but it can't end there. It's not really about self-development. It's the universe developing itself through us. And, and we are each contributing to the awakening of the whole. Hazrat Inayat Khan, who we represent, has this saying, the aim of, of, of spiritual work today is the awakening of the consciousness of humanity to the divinity of the human being. Mm. I love it. It's not personal anymore. It's the, it's, it's the whole being. The one being of humanity is waking up to its own divinity. Yeah, and that, that actually harkens back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago when we were talking about samadhi and individuality and you know, living as a person and so on. I mean, if you, if you get right down to the real nitty-gritty, what are we? You know, we're that divine being which underlies and contains and gives rise to the whole universe. And but we're we're each just sort of individual expressions of that, you know, like little villi, little sense organs, and uh, that's waking up to itself through the instrumentality of me and you and you and each of us. Correct? Would you agree? That's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. You've got it. That's it. Yeah. And that's and that and there wouldn't be it wouldn't have been that long ago that you would be tried for blasphemy and heresy. Oh yeah, for saying such a thing. In fact, even now, um, you know, when uh, you, certain people hear someone say, "Oh, you are God," or "God is within you," and so on and so forth, they they hear that as being very a very egotistical statement because what they think you're saying is your individuality is God. But what what they're really saying is, you know, obviously, that your your innermost being, your essence, that that which ultimately you are, is that. That's right. Right. That's right. And that is, you see, and that needs to be developed, and that's when people won't have a problem to do what they love to do. Hmm. That's when you won't be clogged up with consumerism and with getting afraid when you're being laid off. You know, those, I think it's so beautiful to see through the problem of in the outer world today that the development of the one is collectively. And I think, I think this is actually where our work should be, to help that. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Llewellyn Von Lee again, I mentioned him earlier. He he just edited a book um, that was contributed to by Vandana Shiva and many other people entitled "Spiritual Ecology." And I haven't read it yet, but as I understand, the theme of it is that you know the the ecological problem, which is very concerning, uh, 
has as its ultimate solution spiritual development. Uh, and we can say the same of economic problems and this whole thing you're, you're talking about with everyone having to work so hard and all that. Uh, and obviously most people don't see it that way. They, they kind of are just looking for technological solutions or political solutions. This, this party says we can solve it and that party says we can solve it. But ultimately, without the spiritual foundation, there's no possibility of any kind of real solution. That's right. We we heard uh, Llewellyn Von Lee's talk at that. Nundra, the sand, yeah. Uh, don't. And we were very disappointed. How oh, so? Now your wife is saying don't. Uh, why were you disappointed? He was expressing hopelessness. He said there's 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 no point in in human life anymore. It's it's senseless and there's we we can't make any any meaningful contribution. I remember that, but I'll have to listen to the talk again because I was, I, as I recall, he was saying it could go that way, but not, it doesn't have to go that way. Well, he said it is that way now. Oh, yeah, it might seem dire. Personally, actually, after his talk, and he also gave a, a talk with David Loy um, about ecology and so on, and I, I did a little interview later on that day with David Loy and Igor Kufiev, and we were talking about this. And the, the main theme that came out is that there's cause for optimism. Uh, that if and Llewellyn is a deep person. I wouldn't. I don't think he's gotten mired in pessimism. But if you kind of if you don't have the appreciation of the spiritual upwelling that's taking place in the world, which you've been referring to, you know, like there's this groundswell of, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, then I think you could become very depressed because what hope is there? That the, the economy is going to hell in a handbasket and the, the ecology and, and so on. But if you see this uprising taking place and it's subtle, so it may, you may not see it unless you're involved in it, then there's reason for optimism. Lots of reason. This is an exciting time. This is the best possible time in the history of humanity to be awake. To be I agree. Alive. It's it's very exciting. It's very exciting, and there's every reason for optimism. Like I, these people who, I mean, that's why I was so disappointed. Uh, somebody who's a spiritual person should be just full of that vitality and excitement that this is it, you know. And we can, we're doing it, and we are it, and this is our time. Yeah, I'm going to listen to that talk again, and maybe I'll I'll give you my impressions of it. I have a recording of it. I could, I could even send it to you, but because uh, yeah, well, we we won't spend our time dwelling on the Welland. But um, anyway, the the point we're making is that no one should despair. Uh, there's there's yeah. something very very exciting taking place in the world and it's not just the arab spring and you know this and you know, people divulging government secrets and all those are just the tip of the iceberg there's there's some right. yeah there's some fundamental shift taking place and the, the the new agers have been predicting for a, for a long time but we're kind of seeing how it's actually pay, playing out i've been waiting for the revolution since the 60s when i was very much involved in the peace movement <laughs> I was a I was a hardcore revolutionist in the sixties, mm -hmm. and then I I became disillusioned with that movement because they didn't have uh, a vision of what they wanted. They only knew what they didn't want. Yeah, the group, at least the people I was hanging with, and um, so I I I from there I got into the. Um, the lifestyle movement, you know, like what is a lifestyle that is prophetic today? What, how should we live? Can we make an example ourselves of of uh, a spiritually aware, ecologically sane lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And I spent 16 years in communes, having started several, 
and uh, and then I could see well it's not there either it's it's really in the individual awakening of this ability to see the divine in life mm-hmm. with that you need the heart and I was meditating for decades on this these very esoteric and, and very sort of far out cosmic experiences and I didn't have a heart mm. Mm-hmm. And now, now we focus entirely on the heart, and we see that's where the two worlds meet. The world that's invisible and the world that's material, the world that's universal and the world that's individual, they meet in the heart. Mm-hmm. And that's where you want to be, you know. Mm. So a, another guy that we have, that we take exception to, is uh, Deepak Chopra, uh-huh. who we, we, listen to, <laughs> we listen to a lot of his talks. And he's, he's talking about how reality exists in packets. And in between the packets, there's nothingness. But that's like quantum digital, physics, you know, like, Well, it's, no, it's not quantum physics. It's Vedanta is what it is. In, in, there's nothing in quantum physics that, that requires that reality be turned on and off. So he talks about the on-off states of reality. And, and you want to get into the off state because that's where all the potential is. But... Um, the Sufis have never seen it that way. The Sufis have seen always a universe which is continuous. It's, it's never off. See, But this, leads, this gives such a fundamental direction to the spiritual work. If our intention is to get into the off state that exists between the on states, uh, these you know, very, very fine units of like, reality, then we need to be non-existent as well. You know, we need to be we need the monastic. We, we, need the mon- we need the monastic path. Yeah. But if you see the universe as continuous and always existing and never off, then our objective is to become everyone, everything. You know, incorporate all, leave nothing out. And this is we find this very very challenging because the first thing people want to leave out are all the things they call negative. Mm. Who wants to be negative? Who wants to have negative feelings? Yeah. <laughs> What did you say? (laughs) So it's fun interviewing a married couple. Um, (laughs) Well, let me comment on that. Uh, Deepak is an old buddy of mine. I taught his TM course when when he learned to meditate and uh, lived with his parents for a couple of months in India. And I, you know, I think where he's coming from, and I haven't seen him since he became famous, but I think where he's coming from in saying that illustrates a principle, which is that you can take anything anybody says just about, and you can understand it as true within a particular context. For instance, when you were making your first statement, Susanna said, well, that's quantum physics. Yeah, there are certain things that are true on the level of quantum uh, mechanics that make no sense whatsoever on the level of Newtonian mechanics, Newtonian physics. And you can't interpose the two. You can't, you know, take quantum mechanical laws and, and see them working on Newtonian levels of reality and vice versa. So, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Each of, the, each of these rea- realities has its... And, and the, the, the trouble people get into, which is I think what you were alluding to, is that they sometimes take... Uh, probably not the experience because it's probably too deep, but at least the understanding of a certain level of nature's functioning. And they kind of transpose that onto their relative life and try to live by it. And then that screws things up. For instance, you hear people saying, well, ultimately there is no self, 
therefore don't bother to do practices because it's only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer. And it's going to, it's going to reinforce the notion of a self, which is ultimately false, and therefore you're making right. a mistake. So that's what they're doing. They're kind of mixing up levels. And I think that's, that's what right. you're, I think that's what you're objecting to here. Very nice. Well, he objects to a lot of different things. What he wants to say is that we have very clear teachings, and those are the teachings of the heart. And uh, so, you know, I do think that is actually the challenge with the different spiritual groups moving forward as one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In a way, that's in a way that's what, according to me, the world would need. We would need more of these merging because you know when I listen to you I can feel and understand that you have different practices than I do but we have the ability to talk so deeply that I actually have the feeling I agree with you mm -hmm. and when I talk with you I have the feeling I could actually sit in the same room right next to you I could do my practices and you could do yours and we would feel good with each other yeah, and, and I wouldn't I for a second. Think, I wouldn't for a second think that well, your practice is inferior to mine. I've got the best practice, you know. <laughs> uh, in fact, I might want to try yours also, you know. And, and yeah. although you don't, you don't want to try everything under the sun because that becomes a hodgepodge. But um, you know, you know how you were saying earlier about the unity of religions and how we're not going to achieve it by all religions becoming one. That's just not going to happen because that's not the way nature is. I mean, if you go to the Amazonian rainforest, it's a very fertile ground, and you see all kinds of different foliage. And you don't, you wouldn't expect to see all plants the same. You know, there's this, yeah, this flower and that flower and this tree and that vine. So much diversity, and yet they're all very lush by virtue of how nutritious the soil is there. So we just need to sort of nourish the ground and let all these different expressions of spirituality flourish, and to each his own, and and everyone's following their own path. But we're all on the same team. That's right. That's yeah. right. Very nice. Very nice. Very beautiful. Very and nice. and you know, uh, if you don't go, if you don't stay with one practice, you never get very deep. If you go from one practice to the other, which some people do, uh, you stay always on the surface. Yep. Like, how are you going to find water? Dig dig ten wells that are a foot deep, or one well that's ten feet deep? <laughs> That's right. Very nice. That's lovely, right. lovely. You, uh, you've got wonderful metaphors. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I don't think I thought up any of them. <laughs> that's all right. You can recall them. That's the point. That's, that's the value. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, I think spiritual people, or spiritual seekers, have a lot to contribute these days uh, to lifting the consciousness of the whole or of the one. Uh, and I think that's a very important job. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, do you, now I, I could ask you. I could take us on another line of um, discussion at the moment. But is there anything on either of your minds that you want to just sort of express right now? Well, I would say that this the, these different approaches that we're talking about they they do come through in the personality. Mm -hmm. And so, if you make personality development a goal of the spiritual work. Mm -hmm. Then you see that these the different paths lead to quite different personalities. Yeah, true. Because I've I have studied with teachers that were just incredibly uh, confrontational mm. and and um, you know insulting 
<laughs> they had the feeling that if they just if they just mowed you down, then of course you could grow up again as a you know as a proper being. We just have to destroy the ego as we have it, and so it can regenerate. Well, that's not our philosophy. I mean, and I think you 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 feel that in a person. You feel it in hanging out with them and being with them. You know, it, Susanna was talking about this retreat we just led. Um, we ate with people. We ate in the same dining room. They rubbed shoulders with us. We had the same bathroom. We had the same shower. People would meet us in the in the in the communal shower room. I mean, that's unusual for a teacher. But we think that's really important. You know, it's really important that we that we mingle at every level. That we that we that we be heart heart oriented rather than. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that's I think that's important. But what was interesting, you know, we do evaluation. <laughs> the people thought that that was important, mm. and that was like, why is that important to you? And uh, I do think what people struggle with—they said this literally—is that when um, you develop as a spiritual person, that they have the feeling you are not like them. Right. And by brushing that your teeth next to them in the bathroom, you brush them very similarly as they do. I guess <laughs> I think that's what it comes down Maybe to. Maybe we brush our teeth differently. I know what you mean. I mean, there's a tendency for people to put teachers up on a pedestal, and to and that creates a problem in which you feel like, well, I could never be like them, you know, and they're not like me, and there, there's this sort of hierarchy that, that gets built on naturally. And, uh, you know, sometimes teachers get so big that it's hard for them to mingle like that. For instance, um, Ama, the hugging saint, you know, she's got this huge millions of people worldwide following. But she gets down in the mud. I mean, when there's something to be built in her ashram, she'll get out there and haul sandbags. And, you know, there was one story where she jumped into an open sewer to clear feces out of a sewer pipe with her bare hands because no one else would do it. Um, and, you know, they, they set up a bucket brigade until the thing got cleared. So, uh, you know, I think sometimes teachers do try to set an example, even if they can't sort of mingle to that extent all the time without getting mobbed day in and day out and never have a moment's rest. They, they, they at least try to demonstrate that ultimately, essentially, we're all, we're all one. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Go ahead. Oh, so the, what I was going to do was um, give you the opportunity, if you will, to kind of lay out these stages of progression that you discuss in Follow Your Heart. And uh, I don't know if we have time to get into it, there, but there was a beautiful interpretation of the labyrinth in the book also, which I thought was fascinating how the, if you follow the, the labyrinth, you, uh, you it, sometimes you come very close to the center, but then you actually have to go out again and come around and then back again. And it's a sort of integrative process where you think you're almost there, but then you, re then there, you have to go way out to integrate something that you hadn't integrated. And, and so perhaps we could weave that into the discussion as well. But perhaps maybe we could start by, you know, what there are different models and uh, you know different ways people could explain stages of progression to to higher development and I myself was a meditation teacher for many years and you know one one thing I just want to throw in before you start is that 
As a meditation teacher, I spent years being very good at talking about stages of development which I actually had not yet experienced. And I, I later sort of realized I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, you know, I just want to speak from my experience what, to whatever extent it's, it's developed. Um, or at least make it very clear that I'm speculating if that's what I'm doing, I'm just that I am discussing something I haven't yet experienced. So perhaps in, in the laying out these stages, if you don't mind getting a little personal, you could also tell us to what extent this is your own experience or to what extent you're parroting something your teacher has taught you. I love that about you. you you're really uh, honest, and that's amazing. That's wonderful. That's... Uh, because as you say, it, it's so it's so interesting to talk about these wonderful states, and it's so fascinating. And then we a person can easily go beyond their experience and just into realms of uh, I read this and I heard this, and and what's the point of that? You know? Yeah. Um, for, we have books for that. <laughs> <laughs> Human beings are for this direct transmission from person to person of real experience. Now our, those books, that book that we read, uh, we wrote, it's called Follow Your Heart. It lays out the steps of the path to illumination. This is something that we've experienced uh, ourselves personally, even further stages than those, and that we have experienced in our students. We've seen our students go through those steps, and our our promise as a school is that we can take. A student through those nine steps. That's our that's our contract mm -hmm. with uh, with our students. In a particular time span, or what? Well, faster than it happened for us. Okay. <laughs> that's that's the hope of every teacher, is that their students have less of a difficulty than they had, and we've seen it happen in ten years. Mm -hmm. Um, we've seen it, uh, depends on at what point people find us, what step are they on when they find us, you know. That's right. Um, step seven in the path we call enlightenment. And then we've identified step nine. And, of course, this, this whole map, by the way, this is not ours. I mean, the conception of that is something we inherited. But the experience of it is ours. And the ability to recognize people in those steps requires... Uh, identify remembering. It requires remembering. You know, oh, I, I see in you something I remember going through. Mm -hmm. You know, so one has to have the direct experience to be able to recognize it in others. What, what, the other thing about this map that we describe in there is, it's really a map of the path of life. You see, life itself pushes you through steps, mm -hmm. if you like it or not. And But what our experience is, is that uh, certain steps on the path of life, you won't get further on. So when we wrote this book, we went on tour with it, and I remember having met a man who uh, came to me afterwards, and he said, Susanna, thank you so much for coming here to this little town he says I have been on this particular step for 27 years and didn't know there was a further step mm -hmm. he says and I have been on antidepressant and in treatment heavily because I didn't know that this was a so called spiritual step 
and that one can go further with it. So certain steps you need a teacher or a guide or somebody who has broken through. And this is what I mean with mankind or with humankind at this point. I'm sorry that I'm so insistent on this <laughs> topic. But this is what I have the feeling mankind is at a certain step. And mankind is breaking through as a whole to this, to this new step and that's where our responsibility is. But let's go back and talk about these steps uh, as we describe them. Um, there wasn't one more thing that I wanted to say in general about it. Uh, so life, I don't know, it probably comes again. I think <laughs> when we listen to each other, it will come. Yeah. So the, the first step, Rick, is a very simple one, and uh, people are being challenged in life to that, and that is making a commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, can you make a commitment? And then that's like on all different levels, you know, like to another person. Uh, but can you pay a mortgage? Can you make a commitment to a job? So that's how you see that it is in life. Uh, a more difficult step is can you make a commitment to a path? So this is what we experience too. So you can go in your life. You can come to step four, five, six, even six. Some people go even further. But when they start making a commitment to a spiritual path, they go through all these steps again. Hmm. I think that's the other thing I wanted to say. So I, I guess two questions that come up is how do you determine whether the path is worthy of committing to? And another question might be, is there, might there come a time when it would be advisable to break that commitment because the path has outlived its usefulness? That's right. Yeah, we say that uh, not every path um, that comes down off the mountain from the spring at the top reaches <laughs> the ocean. Right. Sometimes a river will dry up mid, you know, midstream, and and so not every path leads to the end. Mm-hmm. And some sometimes you have to then, uh, you know, what water does was it when it comes down the hill and doesn't go any further it. It evaporates and re-precipitates and yeah. try another path. And I've seen people who have become dilettantes, who just like skip from one thing to another without really getting into it. Uh, and I've seen others who maybe stay in a path to the point where they're just all dried up. Uh, they're, there's yeah. no, in, no inspiration, you know. They're, they're just kind of routinely doing the same thing without yeah. getting anything out of it. And I've seen others uh, who... You know, give something its 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 full shot for uh, maybe even a couple of decades, and then realize, all right, I've done it with this. Now I'm going to switch into something else. Absolutely, we get a lot of those people because yeah. there's, you know, you, a teacher a teacher can't make this all all this stuff up in one lifetime. It's the the complexities of the unity state are so great, and it's so hard to to conceptualize and and to live. You have to stand on the backs of people that have gone before. Mm-hmm. So to, to look at these nine steps in a, in a broad brush, they, there's three groups. So we call them three stages of three steps each. Mm-hmm. And you can identify the stages pretty clearly in people's behaviors. So the first stage is about being separate from each other. The second is about being connected to each other. And the third is about being unified, in unity with each other. When you look at a person's behavior, you can say, you can kind of sense, let's say, it's not, it's not, you, you, you can kind of sense, are they behaving as if 
they their impact on another didn't affect themselves right i mean like if you if you do something to somebody else it's going to affect you back but not everybody sees that so that's that would be step stage one right an obvious example would be people who commit crimes and you, you know go rob a convenience store but but obviously there are more sophisticated crimes you know and and even social and political and economic policies that are very harmful to lots of people and uh, and but it, you know they may serve the stockholders and so they seem justifiable exactly that, that's exactly it yeah. and and, the, and for the second stage where one feel, where we feel connected to each other it requires the opening of the heart, because that's how we feel connected. The mind isn't connected, but the the heart feels each other. And um, whereas the mind is built to see the difference between people, the heart is built to feel the similarity. So with the heart, we feel you're just like me in some way, and and naturally, then I better I have to treat you in a way that's going to be good for you because it's going to be good for me. I'm going to feel good if I treat you well. And, then, and just to interject, I mean, Susanna was talking earlier about the whole society evolving just the way an individual evolves. I mean, look at, for instance, uh, race relations and, and where the South was 30, 40 years ago with you know, official segregation. And these days, most of the southern cities have black mayors and everybody's good friends. And, you know, the, 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 the way, you know, it had been several decades before is just so alien to what it is now. So... So there's exactly. been there's been this evolution. That's why we 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 think that the our society as a whole is moving in from this first stage to the second stage. Right. Which is which is the the first three steps into the next three steps. Okay. And that's and that's because you you see all over the place you see heart heart heart. I mean even in business consultants they talk about heart and feelings and and consideration and uh, the, the, the deeper concerns, not the immediate um, quarterly returns. And so it's happening. It's happening. We're just happy to be a little part of it, a little, we, somebody who, who can talk about what this process is that's happening. It's a process of the world discovering its heart. But I think if a smaller group of people go through the details of these steps, that's what kicks in the hole. And yeah. a small group of people feels it. You know, that person who, who came to me and talked, who went through deep depressions. You know, there are certain people in this society who go through deep depressions. A lot of them don't. Why don't they? Mm. You know, so there are certain hearts who really feel it. And I think those hearts... They took on this work to lift the hole. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm right about this, but that's how it feels. Well, I mean, you know, in the physical heart, about 1% of the cells are called pacemaker cells, and they actually regulate the beating of the entire heart. So only a small percentage of the cells have to be sort of functioning in synchrony for the whole heart to function properly. So what, what you're suggesting is that a, a, a my, tiny minority of society might undergo a significant shift, and that's going to bring the whole society into that's right. alignment. That's right. Maybe this is the time to talk about the Cleveland experiment. Yep. Okay, Cleveland. We, we, <laughs> you know that in, in 1993, the TM group did an experiment on Washington, D.C., where they reduced crime. I was there. You were there? You were there? Yeah. Come oh, on, cool. tell us about it. We never met anybody who was really there. Oh, it was hot. 
<laughs> it was hot. Yeah, it was like 100 degrees. And, uh, and we were scattered all over the, c- the city in different facilities. And I was in a bigger one, actually, here in Iowa, where we had 8,000 people in one building meditating together. And that was really profound. But uh, anyway, so... 8,000 people? Yeah. Wow. It was, it I, was, I love uh, the numbers that TM is able to produce. It was profound. Uh, you could, I mean, imagine being in a group of 8,000 people all doing a, like a two-hour meditation routine together. It was, you could cut it with a knife. It was so thick. Uh, but in any case, this thing in D.C., and uh, I didn't mean to throw you off your No, game. no, I'm going to So all I was aware of as a participant was, you know, we were just doing our, our twice-daily routine together in groups and the, there was no one facility large enough so that you know we're some of us were in this college and some of us were in this hotel and you know scattered about the city with uh, half a dozen different groups and uh and it was nice and we went on for a couple weeks like that but then all these sort of sociologists and statisticians and so on were working in collaboration with the police department collecting statistics on crime and correlating it with other variables such as weather and, and so on where ordinarily hot weather would actually result in an increase in crime because uh, people all get hot tempered literally uh, but th- they found uh, that there was a statistical reduction in crime during that two week period which event eventually reverted back to normal after we left and we did another one where I was in Iran, and, and we had groups in uh, Central America, Southern Africa, the Middle East, Iran, and uh, Thailand, because there were sort of trouble spots at those times. It was like when the Shah was about to leave, and things were crazy in Iran. And again, they found reductions in violence uh, and social unrest, you know, war, war deaths and stuff. And the, the principle of it, and you know some people have criticized the research and said that it's just a PR stunt and that they're just you know it wouldn't hold up but some of it was published in peer reviewed scientific journals but the principle of it was that consciousness is a field and if you enliven that field then that enlivenment doesn't just take place in the room where you're sitting it and takes place throughout the entire vicinity and um, results in an upsurge or a upwelling of coherence and orderliness in the entire environment which ends up impacting people's behavior unbeknownst to them but there's just a sort of a general and of course there are always variations to any generality but the general trend was for greater orderliness and coherence reduced violence and conflict and so on so that's it but I just wanted to know do you have an explanation for this because according to my understanding you know I had I had a two roommates who did TM mm-hmm. and according to my understanding when you do TM you leave your body I never have. You never have. No. So, but you really, <laughs> you really make your breathing very slight. That's a side effect. You don't make it slight, but it's like when you go to sleep at night, your your heart rate and your breath rate and all those reduce because you're you're in a, a rested state. So the mind and body are correlated, and if the mind settles down to a much quieter level of functioning, the body is going to settle down along with it. The two are connected. So that's all that happens. The, the mind settles down, but you haven't left your body. It's more of an integrative state rather than a disassociative one. I see. Yeah. And how many people were in your experiment in, in, in Washington, D.C.? Oh, I think about 3,000, something like yeah. that. Uh-huh. All right, so I'll tell you about our experiment with Cleveland. We had okay. a friend in Cleveland, and um, she's uh, uh, the, the number two person in the, um, uh, what's it called? The um, United Way. United Way. Mm-hmm. 
So she's very plugged into the community, and she said, you, can you do anything to help us? Cleveland is one of the most economically depressed cities in America. Yeah. Which I thought it was a title reserved for someplace in Alabama or something, but no, it's in Cleveland. They lost a lot of the auto industry that they used to they, have there. Yeah. Exactly. There are blocks and blocks of houses that are vacant. Mm -hmm. So a, a really uh, interesting thing about Cleveland is that the, the police department there is up to date, and they put on their website every single crime in a database, you can, and you can search it, and you can download it. So, and it, 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 the, the data that they provide indicates time of day, date, time of, you know, type of uh, crime, details about where it occurred. All right, so we have the data, see? And that's what, back in 1993, you didn't have that advantage in Washington. And I could download that, and I'm a computer scientist by trade, so I can download all that data and build a database out, out of it and analyze it. All right, so then we took on the, the project to meditate um, about Cleveland from Tucson. We're, we're about 2,000 miles, almost exactly 2,000 miles from Cleveland. And so there was our friend in Cleveland and then the two of us here in Tucson. We meditated at 3 a.m., which was 6 a.m. Cleveland time, um, three days a week. And four days a week we did not meditate. And then we, re we buried the days to avoid day of week bias. We did this for three months. And then we looked at the data for the days we meditated versus the days we didn't meditate. Now, see, what you did in Washington, it was a little different protocol. You were meditating every day, and then you compared the data to a year ago, and then compensated for things like um, employment rate and um, weather and so on. We didn't, we didn't do that because we, the factors are on a short term or less critical. I mean, it's, so we just looked at what, were the crime, what was the crime like on the days we meditated versus the days we didn't, with it within the same week, right? And we had a fourth person involved who called us on what days to meditate. So it wasn't like every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday we meditated. Right. It was randomized. It was randomized by, 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 a, by a, fourth a fourth person. person. And so analyzing all this data, we had uh, you know 100,000 crimes that we, we, we could analyze in, in three months. We found that the effect was much greater for the next six hours after we meditated. So from 6 a.m. Cleveland time to noon, we had the most effect. And then there was, there was an effect over the 24 hours from that. So within the first six hours, violent crime decreased 34%. Mm. Over, the, over the next 24 hours, it was down 19%. Mm -hmm. Violent crime compared to the days that we didn't meditate at all. And that's three people. See? Um, the, the way we did it is also different from what you described in, um, in the Washington ex experiment, because we weren't working on the ground of being, raising the ground of being, energizing the, the, the platform on which human consciousness is built. Right? What we did was we said, um, we want to think of Cleveland and we want to bring Cleveland here. Also, we weren't, we weren't considering sending energy from Tucson to Cleveland because by the square of the distance law, there wouldn't be much left, right? <laughs> so what we did instead was to think, 
we want to we want to absorb Cleveland and bring it into our bodies so that the effect is then local Cleveland is here and I can have a very powerful effect on Cleveland if it's in me okay? and that means that then all that was happening emotionally violently in joy and then bliss everything that was going on all those emotions in Cleveland were happening inside us and then our job was to process those emotions, integrate them, work them out together, bring an integration and a peace to the inner experience we're having, which was then reflected back upon Cleveland. When you were functioning that way as a kind of a washing machine for Cleveland, um, did you feel, I mean, did you literally feel like a lot of garbage that was going on, you know, the drug addicts and the rapists and the murderers? and I mean, did you feel like you were sort of taking that all in and purifying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, all that emotion, that that despair, mm-hmm. that anger, but at the same time, also the joy of people having babies and the joy of people sure. making love, and all, all that's in there too, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's just that in Cleveland they're separated. You know, mm-hmm. this this person's feeling this and this person's feeling that, but if you can bring it together into one heart, then that mixes and everything becomes different. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that integration, there is less violence, there is, there is more harmony. Right? Mm-hmm. And so people act more harmoniously. I, I did not experience detailed emotion when I did the practice. You know, we do this practice too one-on-one, like as partner exercises or with, gro- with smaller groups. When I do the practice with, with a partner, with one person, you know, to, to sort of assess the state or, you know, what step on the path would they be on or what archetype they are. I can feel when somebody has an earache, I can pick that up. They don't tell me I have an earache, but I can say, wow, your left ear is really hurting. Or I can say, you know, something what people might call medical intuitive. I'm not, I cannot say their whole medical history or so on, but I can say certain things I pick up. With the Cleveland uh, experiment, which I was part of, I cannot say that I was like even in a heightened emotional state. It was just very, very uh, overwhelming energetically. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt more. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, for me it was hard to say, was I in Cleveland, you know, like was that energy around me or was I in it? I could I could have not differentiated. Yeah, that's very so interesting. Though it's more I mean, like more like that, you know, it's like a very very strong vibrating energy. That's how it felt. Yeah, well, having participated in experiments like this myself, as you, as I was saying, I I fully um, believe that, that this is possible. This kind of thing, and it's sort of a a hint at how uh, we might undergo really profound and wide-sweeping social change if even a relatively small percentage of people undergo sufficient development. Yeah, I like your what you said about the heart. It only takes a few cells to control the rhythm of the heart, which then mm-hmm. controls the rhythm of the whole body. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And even beyond the body, because the magnetic field pulses when the heart mm-hmm. pulses, and that goes mm-hmm. right out into the room. Mm-hmm. So um, environment, and yeah. only a few cells really doing the work. Yep. 
So there, are, there are a number of other examples of like that from physics and biology, too. That's just an example. But it, there, there are numerous examples where in lasers and magnets, various things where just a small percentage, sometimes even the square root of 1%, is sufficient to shift the behavior of the entire system. Mm-hmm. Yes, that square root of 1% is a number that, that the TM people right. use a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and we wanted to know what could one or two people do. Right. Because those are the people we can directly connect with, and, and, and so this is, our, this is the work of our school, is to train people to be able to do that in their own community, in their own family, start with their family, mm-hmm. and, and see if they can have an effect on harmonizing the whole family, mm-hmm. so that people get along better in a measurable way, mm-hmm. really emotionally significant, and then extend that to the group, mm-hmm. the larger group. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about these stages, and we we were there were three groups of three, and we were going through the first group, and it was like all, every man for himself, and then the heart wakes up, and then more of a unity thing, as I recall, and somehow that inspired this discussion about Cleveland and everything. So maybe we could sort of put that back into context, and then take it from there. Mm-hmm. Well, when when the, in the second stage, when the heart uh, opens and becomes uh, accessible. Mm-hmm this enormous power develops in people. So we see that a lot of really successful people uh, are using their hearts. I mean, business people use their hearts. People that, uh, sports people, people that follow their passion, they're using their heart, you know. And it gets to a certain point. And so the first five steps out of these nine are about personal development. Mm-hmm. And then step six hits, and that's when it starts to unravel. It's the dark night of the soul. See, Rick wanted to have, hear a lot of our personal stories. We have, <laughs> we have personal stories about each one of these steps because we can, we can remember, you know, going through each of these steps, sometimes multiple times, sometimes for years and years, right? Because we weren't so familiar with the steps in the days that we went through them. When I personally came to making a commitment to the path, uh, according to my understanding of the path, you know, which is looking at it retroactive, was at the stage six. And we find a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people come to the spiritual path on stage six. And what is stage six? You, You mentioned one, two, three, but you haven't mentioned four, five, six. Uh, no. Well, let's, no let's I, go back. I, this is where I'm going to get to, you know. So okay. Stage one is making a commitment. Stage two is testing it. And stage three is feeling very comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So I went through those steps in my life, right? I could make commitments to a relationship. I could make commitments to work. I could, um, you know, earn my money. And I could, um, you know, so all these things I could do. And... I had even challenged myself in my personal life, you know, to heart openings, you know, to go, because this would be step four, five, and six. Mm. Uh, And, um, you know, step four is like that your heart opens. And I think I experienced this in in personal relationships, so in particular with uh, my, uh, my sister, you know, who had been in a monastery and, uh, was asked to leave the monastery because of mental illness. And uh, that sort of ripped my heart because I really tried to help her, and I was not successful in helping her. 
and that sort of leaves your heart in a state, you know, of being undone, being gripped open and undone, and where you have more the feeling, wow, there must be more to it. And uh, but I felt on a personal level of um, not being able to take care of this or not ever being able to take care of this. So I, I left that situation and I said to myself, well, I have to take more care of myself. And I was back then in the theater business and I was able to be quite successful in that work. And what was interesting to me about it was that it didn't create any inner satisfaction. And that is what brought me to this step, step six, similar to with uh, you know, with my sister, you know, this, I left that, I could not bring that to a successful state, but the theater was a rather successful state, and that is what created for me the step towards the spiritual path, where I had the feeling there must be more to life. And especially it was that intense in my personal life that I had been, because of my theater work, you know, because you have to always give an out of face. Uh, to your inner experiences. I said, well, I'm searching for a teacher, and so I studied with Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, but it created no satisfaction whatsoever. And that's how I found then my spiritual teacher. Mm -hmm. And I had to make a commitment. See, here I'm at step one again. Do you mm -hmm. see how I'm... Right. And the, the difficulty for me was now, now, am I that needy, you know, that I'm committing myself to a cult. You know, those are the mental stages again, do you see? Mm -hmm. Although I had gone internally through so much, outwardly, by, by being confronted, committing myself to a teacher, my mind is being full-blown back and saying, wow, now you're committing to yourself where a lot of your friends and a lot of other people have told you, now you're hitting really low, you're going to a cult, and who knows what the spiritual teacher is and all. You see, and that's a mental state, so I'm being back at step one on my spiritual step, and I'm going through testing with my spiritual teacher who says to me, you know, you are an incredible evolved being. Do you know what I mean? And was you that the Sufi teacher? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, I never messed with any other, you know, any other path once I found that. I'm somebody who, when I commit, hopefully I commit. And so, um, so, but there I, you go then through testing, and I went through testing with my teacher, you know, does he really see me? Does he really understand me? Will he really hold me? And that brings you then into step three, you know, where you're comfortable with the past. Yeah, this is my school, this is my past, this is my sangha. Uh, and that went all very, very fast for me till I met this man, do you see? Because that sort of threw my whole life apart again in the spiritual school, mm. do you see? Was that frowned upon or something or just... Heavily, heavily. He was married and I was married. Oh, I see, yeah. Having an affair in the spiritual school, you know... That's a no-no. That's a no-no, and it should be a no-no, theoretically. Right. You know, theoretically, nobody should have an affair because you abandoned and hurt the one whom you love. Mm -hmm. And that's what opens up the heart. 
Mm. Again, on another level. It's one of the things that opens the heart. <laughs> <laughs> There's other things. <laughs> but do you see how how um, these stages? Um, so and they they kind of loop around. Well, it is just not completely, not like that. It mm. it only loops when you have gone through life. And this is what we experience with a lot of our people. You know, they come to our school and it's assessing where are they. You know, and then we can give them feedback. Oh, that's what you're going through. You're in step five. You're very accomplished and you see the abyss coming mm. <laughs> and you don't want to go there. And then if they commit themselves to the path, it starts with step one. Mm -hmm. And that is for a lot of people a very, um, on the one hand, a peace giving thing, you know, but they have the feeling now I'm in step one again, you know, and I have gone through all this again. But everything is experienced new, you know, I think a lot of spiritual paths describe that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the skill is then to help to go through all the nine steps where, and you go through this, through this with the teacher, with the what you call the Sangha, we just call it the community of the heart. And uh, I have the feeling if you go through all these steps, then you start becoming useful. Mm -hmm. And so then what, oh, I'm sorry, Puran, go ahead. So you want to, I could describe these steps a little. Yeah, a little please. The, More theoretical? Yeah. <laughs> so emotional? That would, be, that would be my job. <laughs> the... Um, the first three steps are about developing concentration. And you see a lot of people in life have developed concentration or they, because it's necessary to be successful. The, the ultimate step in concentration is to be able to focus on something so intensely that there's no distraction. Nothing else exists for that I could, time. I, I could learn that one a lot better. <laughs> oh, no, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work and then some email comes in and I'm like, oh, what's this? But but you have you have uh, shown persistence and deliberation and consistency with this work that you're doing here on Saturday mornings. Sure. And, it's, and you're very focused on it. And when you're here, you're not thinking about something else. I can just you're you're right with us, right? So you're really focusing on us. And and that's so it's it's necessary to get to this point. But not everybody gets there. Some people still haven't learned concentration. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of spiritual schools that really focus on this step a lot, like focusing on a point on the wall, developing a mandala. Um, there's lots of ways to do it. The next, the next three steps are about emotional development, where we're, we're learning how to do contemplation. We, we call it contemplation. Contemplation is where you, the thing that you're focusing on, you actually become it. So, like, you could, you could uh, concentrate on a plant, like if you're a gardener or you're taking care of house plants or something, you have to concentrate on what does that plant need. But in the next set of steps, you become the plant, and you can feel what it needs. And you, when the plant is dry, you feel thirsty. You see? It's not like you remember, oh, I missed my watering schedule. That's still an objective outsider. That's still steps one, two, three. In steps four, five, and six, you look at the plant and you feel thirsty. See? Hmm. So that's a cha change in identity. And that's done through the heart. That's done by compassion. It's done by feeling 
It's not thinking. It's, and anybody who gets really good at something does it with their heart. I mean, golfers, CEOs. But that's all there is in medical. They're using their heart because they're using their passion and their excitement. And and so there's a there's a step of step four, which is this great awakening. Everything is now technicolor instead of black and white, you know. And you see the beauty in things that you were missing, and the beauty in another person. You see, you fall in love so easily, and you cry at movies, and you you know this this whole emotional experience. And then step five is the ability to to develop that beauty in something where you where you see it's missing. The, in, in four, you're able to discover the, the beauty that's there, but that actually then leads to a rather cynical experience where you blame people for not being the way you see they could be. Mm-hmm. How come you're not developing in your person? How come you're not acting like the beautiful person I see that you are, you know? So we, we blame each other for not being as great as we see them. But in step five, you learn that people could be great if you love them more. It's up to us to create in another what we see in them. And that's a powerful thing. It's, it's, a, it's the power of the heart. And these, so these five steps are self-development. And, when, and this is as far as one can go with one's own personal power. It almost sounds like the Cleveland thing was a step five thing because, you know, you, you kind of loved Cleveland in a sense and that made Cleveland better. It's true. But didn't you want to have personal experiences? You can throw, throw them in there as you go along. Yeah, sure. I had the feeling I went like so far in Purangi's theory. Well, it's good to have both, uh, you know, the theory and then the, the concrete example to illustrate it. Well, what did you want to say about... No, I just felt like uh, when I listen to you, I just get theory. Yeah, but it helps me understand it also. Because if you just tell... I think both are like two steps in walking. You know, you take your left step, your, your right step, and you keep walking along. So it's always good to have an abstract theory and then a concrete illustration and then swing back and forth. So let's swing to the, to the illustration. <laughs> okay, illustrate. No, you're going to illustrate. You have a story. (laughs) Well, um, I I didn't. It's it's just sort of I felt uh, that I made myself very vulnerable. Uh Do you know what I mean? I made myself very vulnerable in telling a very personal story, and I don't mind that. I do that often. Sure. And you know, I do I do know the the theory behind it. I just think it would be a more balanced presentation. You know, if men become more vulnerable too, too yeah. instead of just, you know, he has the theory and she's the example. Because, you know, I go on the road on my own and teach and yeah. I give the presentation and I give the examples. She gives the theory too. Yeah. And, and you know, our path, and I think that's what I want to say too, is, you know, we teach a lot together and develop this work together. It is... Uh, it is a very vulnerable path, and our lives are very intertwined in that, you know, as, because part of, you know, what I just said, by me, um, actually, he was the one who pushed for it, that we are together, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have gone for this, because it's such a big no-no in, in spiritual communities. Um, 
And we, that, that we, brought we, us very much, now I'm talking, it brought me very much into, into developing this heart, you know, because we became sort of outcasts in the community. Ah. And, we belo- and we believed, I at least, this is very interesting too, Rick, he pursued me like mad, that was obviously to the community that this man has gone crazy about a woman, and I became the outcast, not he. Ah, because you were considered the temptress or some such thing. Maybe. I have no clue as what I was considered as. I, I did nothing to this man. You know, I had, I was married and I had, you know, I had not the whatever. I don't want to defend myself because here I am with this man and I'm very grateful for it. But the thing is, is like I became the outcast and um, it did a lot to my heart. Do you know what I mean? And it brought me into this this place internally. Do I want to go for this? And why wanna, do I want to go for this? And, and in which stage is my marriage? And what do I look for in life? And what is important to me? And how do I change all that, what I'm going through? You know, how do I get control over it? And I did not have the support of a teacher or a, or a friend. My husband was mad at me. I mean, I was through the spiritual path pushed into the dark, dark night of the soul mm. and had to figure out on how to get through it. And this is, this is why I was the one who speaks about the invincible heart. You know, that is my topic because the heart carried me through, my own heart, and which has the ability to become the one heart. That is the power of the heart. It's, it is love, it is truth, it is sacredness, and trying to find peace. Those are the qualities of the heart. And that is a tremendous amount of power. And I think every everyday person knows those qualities. Uh, love, truth, sacredness, and peace. So this is, and I said to myself, what is my bottom line? And those, ki- those are the kinds of things that I had to count on. Because I couldn't listen to friends because this was a man who had four children. You know, I mean, these are all things you don't mess with when you live from the heart, right? And we did. And how do you get through it? And so we, you know, this story is 30 years old, so it's easy to talk about it after 30 years. And uh, that is what allowed us to create this school of the heart, because we know the heart from inside out and the power of it and what holds it together if things really fall apart. Mm. So, and this is what I think the world needs at this point because it feels in lots of places the world really falls apart and this is where you can go to. And this is <clears throat> where the step seven comes in where you feel the energy of the spirit. You see, and that is, that is, you know, where the heart, we say this is the step three in meditation, where the heart opens up to the one, to the, to unity. And, uh, and then the guidance becomes very strong, which is eight, and whenever I ask my heart, you know, which way should I go, my heart always strongly said, go with this man. And there I had to address those fears very personally on what it takes because uh, what what I all had to take on by making that step because so I moved in then 
with this man after some time, and then I had four children. All of a sudden. <laughs> all of a sudden. Yeah. So, and that all shows you about the path of the heart. So the path of the heart is not something you imagine. So, um, and the voice of the heart is not something you imagine. It tells you do this, but then you have to create the strength to live the consequences of it. Mm. You know, it has a consequence if you follow your heart. And most people hear the voice of their heart or hear inner voices, but they don't have the strength to follow them because it's actually not always easy or glamorous or, or that. But one has the strength. One yeah. has strengths. It's interesting. There's so many situations, and and they're illustrated in so many myths and stories of where people feel a calling to do a particular thing, and all of the social norms and the the conventional wisdom says you shouldn't do that. But they, you know, it's like the hero's quest kind of thing where they follow that calling nonetheless, and then they end up, you know, like even Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, <laughs> or or like the, that movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he had this feeling, I've got to, you know, this this pile of mashed potatoes means something. You know, what is what is it trying to tell me? And everybody thinks he's going crazy, and he eventually gets in, you know, to where the aliens land. It's like there's so many. It's like a, a, a theme that runs throughout the culture. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so here we are, you know, and that's what uh, we said. So we, uh, because I had, a, you know, um, spiritual experiences before that, and so he had this, and so what do we do with it? And that's how actually then this school of the heart got created. Um, and um, Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. And so that was, I think you're delving now into steps, into the third set of steps by telling this story, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and where? How far have we gotten in these steps? <laughs> well, so what I meant, you know, that this decision-making process to to um, sort of dissolve my my marriage and go with Quran, uh, that was for me the dark night of the soul on the spiritual path, mm. because it really challenged. You know, I had the feeling I was stepping off a cliff, you know, because my That's the feeling. my relationship with my husband was sort of safe. It was not as deep or as spiritual as this relationship then had become. And it was the sense of, too, that if I go this path, that I can fulfill the purpose of my life. Right. I, but, but, you, but you didn't want to do any harm, obviously. Well, uh, and oh, go ahead. See, that is, I think, the challenge often that we don't understand, uh, you know. And um, what what I had to look at, you know, is how does my former husband feel about it, and how does it affect all the people, you know, the four children, and I had a child by then, and the former wife, so. There's a lot of consideration that we knew that we had to go through mm-hmm. uh, by making this happen. And so it was the first, I don't know, 10 years of us being together, all was mending, mending relationships. Yeah. You know, with the children and the former spouses. And, and uh, we needed seven years that we knew each other, that we got married finally. 
We made a big mess, and we had to spend a lot of yeah. time working on that mess. Yeah, yeah. And and that is a lot of that sixth day, you know. So it wasn't like we met and we were happy ever after. Uh, I mean, we were not unhappy, but it needed a lot of mending, and that is work of heart. And of course, a lot of people make that kind of shift and then realize that it was a mistake, you know, or they're just chasing That's out. Right. They're chasing after that excitement that you feel at the beginning of a relationship and they don't you know several years into their marriage they no longer feel it so they think oh i gotta go find it again somewhere else and they go through six or seven of those you know so so that's what you're doing obviously is to be distinguished from uh something more superficial what you did well we were you know we were each happily married and uh i think so it's it's just that you know there there is a person in the world uh, conceptually, I say I believe there's a, such a thing as a soulmate, mm-hmm. and it's it's a, it's a different kind of relationship altogether. It's not a relationship of harmony and 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 wonder, and so it's 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 bigger than anything I had ever imagined. I thought I was with the person I would be with all my life, my ex-wife, and but Susanna just blew that idea apart. I mean, it was in. It was. It, I, I could not avoid it. I could not. I could not reject it. I. I it was so compelling. The the experience of being with Susanna, and then, as we say, you make a commitment, and then you have to have it tested. Everything has to be tested. So, I had to live. Um, I had, we had to live apart for three years before we could get together, and that's. I think that was a wonderful testing time because, as you say, there's this temptation to like just chase the uh, the high. We had years of a, a, a real despair. Would we ever get together? And we, we weren't in. We couldn't talk to each other. We couldn't communicate. And and we held it. We held this ideal of being together through meditation. I mean, I would meditate, and I would. I would be with Susanna in meditation, and I didn't. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't trying to make it happen. It was just that's what would happen all every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, when you have those kinds of experiences, then you try to make them real. You know? But this, what step six is about, is this first step beyond the personal development, where you realize that everything that has made you successful in stages in steps one through five has actually been a special case rather than a general case. So one has become really good at something, like one runs a company and gotten, has gotten very wealthy, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can do other things like hold a relationship together. There's, there's different skills, right? And so a part of a person has, been, has become specialized and really advanced, but in order to go further, you realize then that the very thing that I've relied upon has is also my crutch, my 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 greatness, my my well-developed parts are actually holding me back from experiencing the other parts of myself because I rely on this part so much, and the 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 invisible potentials of myself don't get a chance to get explored because I'm always in my habit of being who I think I am, you know. Mm-hmm. And so as the sense of self begins to enlarge, it actually kind of falls apart because I, I no longer have that specific identity that I thought was me. My identity is getting bigger, 
And the rest of this, I don't know. I don't know the rest of this person. And, and so there's, a, there's an existential challenge to one's paradigm. The whole sense of reality that we have, how things work, who I think I am, my relationship to God, it's all changing. It's crumbling underneath my feet. And we have to go through that. We have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's only the shadow of death, right? Like it says in the Bible. It's right. not that. It's the shadow of death. But you have to walk through that valley and find somebody's hand. Thou art with me. So you can get through it. And so this is where a lot of people discover their teacher. As Susanna said, we, we have a lot of people come to us in this step. They've done everything they think they can do. And that's where I was when I met my teacher. I said to my, I was, a, I was at the top of my game in computer science research. I was a, I was a very far end, you know, far out, futuristic computer researcher uh, at a computer lab that was, I don't know, way ahead of its time. And, and I found my teacher and I, he said, what do you want? And I said, I want to die. <laughs> To everything that I am, you know, I don't want to be who I am anymore. I want to be what I think is possible, which I don't understand. And he said, "Well, you're asking for a lot." And I said, "Well, can you give me just even a taste of 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 what what a human being can be?" And that's and then that's when um, in the Hindu philosophy, that's when uh, Krishna opens up to Arjuna. And shows him the glory of his being, and Arjuna is like wiped out. It's just, yeah, it's like too much. Take it away again. <laughs> so step seven is very hard to integrate because it's the experience of of reality with no lens, mm. and it's very hard to integrate. It's hard to be there and also do the dishes and pay the mortgage and all that. It's a real challenge. And integrate is the key word there because you can't. You can, it can be done, but it has to be integrated. It can be done. Uh, but for a long time, one is bewildered, in awe, you know, and uh, meditation is just an incredible experience. It's just like, it's better than drugs, you know. But, um, so then eventually one learns to work with that experience. And so that's the next step, where you begin to communicate with it. You're not just being bombarded by the universe, you can talk to the universe and get answers back. So a relationship that's workable. A workable relationship develops with the universe. You can interact. You can you can get information. You can get specific answers. You can you can ha you know how to let's say it begins to work for you. You know it's not just overwhelming you. And that's step eight. And step nine is very interesting because in step nine, this experience of the light of the spirit within one becomes so strong it actually creates physical light in the heart physical measurable light so that you perceive with your inner vision so to speak you can count it with a it is it's measurable with a photon counter huh so if you put a person in a dark dark room you'd be able to actually detect photons emanating from the heart i did that uh huh the 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 uh, the threshold of visibility is a thousand photons a second, mm -hmm. and of course a photon, as you know, is like an electron. It's tiny. Right. So a thousand of these a second is like no light at all, basically. Right. But still, the eye can perceive that as visible. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, I could make 100,000 photons a second. So that's two orders of magnitude beyond visibility. Hmm. And that was coming out of my chest. And that was being counted with a photon counter. Mm-hmm. So this is illumination. This is the ability to light the way. You know? Is it is it subtle light, like an aura, which others might not be able to see, or is it more something that even a person without subtle perception would be able to see? Yeah, you can see it. It's it's two orders of magnitude beyond visible. Okay, with so real real photons. Real photons. That's right. These are not metaphysical photons. These are hmm. these are real photons. And no, he did that experiment in Germany. He was in a dark room. A man outside his photon counter. He had no clothes on to have no fluorescent on there. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting part of it. Tell the interesting part of it. Well, I had this. Experience. I had this opportunity to work with this guy who had a photon counter, which is an expensive device, and it's liquid helium cooled, so it's tr- it's a fragile device, right? Mm-hmm. And so it takes a big setup, and it takes a laboratory and all this stuff. And this guy, a friend of mine student of mine actually had such a uh, setup because he was doing some research on plants and um, he was investigating whether organically led, fed plants produce more or less light than regular plants regular um. so he had this machine so I, uh, I was there to do a seminar and so the opportunity arose and I was in the lab with him all day on a Saturday I spent the whole day trying to make light come out of my chest. I know lots of practices. I know Kundalini Yoga. I know the Hierophant practice from the Egyptians, on and on and on. And I could get bursts of light, but I couldn't sustain it. And so I got really worn out, and I went back. I was staying with him overnight and went back to his house, and we found that his son was sick. So he went to deal with his son, and I went to bed. And I woke up early in the morning with a realization of how to do it. And I said, let's go to run to the lab. We went to the lab. It took a couple of hours to get the machine ready. Finally, it was ready, and the room was dark. 20 photon a second background count, which is really dark. And then I turned on the light. One way I did it was I imagined this sick boy who I was, was very real to me because I was staying with him. I'd seen the boy. I imagined this boy who was sick, who needed light, I imagined him in front of me, and his need pulled it out of me. Hmm. I was able to make light descend to him because he needed it. It wasn't just an experiment anymore. It was, you know, useful. And so this is what I learned about science experiments is you can't do them in cold blood. You need need to have a reason to do it. You Hmm. know, the body responds, the psyche, the, the whole being responds to a need and the need isn't, uh, I want to see if I can make these, make the instrument, you know. The need is human to human. So, so ever since then we've been realizing the way to make yourself light up is to imagine sending light to somebody that needs light. Hmm. And at this point people might be wondering, so what? You know, what's the purpose of this? Why should we make ourselves light up? And uh, I think I could give an answer, but I'd rather hear yours. Well, first of all, when that, that light, which is spirit, is, is the light of spirit, when it comes into the mind, it makes the mind light up. It makes the mind brilliant. You get very, very creative. You get inspiration. In the body, it becomes, it becomes vitality, right? Um, but um, as a side effect of helping others, you become enlightened. Mm. 
but it gives you this incredible courage this this sense that there i mean when you know that you're walking around with a lamp in your chest you have a different you have a different life you know you're not not afraid of darkness you're not afraid of death and dying and illness and and not being well liked and and you know lots and lots of stuff people walk around in a lot of fear and there's just no fear when you know that you're sending out light reminds you of that bible verse when your eye is single your whole body shall be filled with light yeah yeah, yeah. eye is single um so did we reach stage nine or was that eight that was nine okay good so these are the the nine steps of the spiritual path which we commit to for a student we Mm -hmm. want our job is when we take on a student we say your path is no longer your own we're there too this is you now have a companion on your path and you have your responsibility but we share that responsibility and if you're not making progress it's as much our fault as your fault now, having reached that ninth step, now, as Susanna says, we're ready for service. Now we're ready to help. We're not helping out of need. We're not helping out of, out of curiosity and what, how, does, how do things work? What kind of effect can we have on life? We're beyond, we're over that. We're ready to serve because that's what we do. Not because it makes us feel good or because we get recognition or that's, it's just because that's what people do. And now there are nine more steps. Nine more steps? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> steps of service. Steps of service, huh? They're not steps of development anymore. And, and, and the, the ninth one of that second group of nine steps is the, is the Christ consciousness. Huh. So that's, oh, where, Buddha consciousness. that's where it goes, or Buddha consciousness. Or <clears throat> and so would you say that, um, so these nine steps of service, which we probably don't have time to uh, elaborate, but... Um, service becomes a path, and that path um, facilitates your evolution. I'm just sort of summarizing, and it leads to what you say: Christ consciousness, or Buddha consciousness, or enlightenment, or whatever. Yeah, yeah this this part of the path is all about your sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. How much? How can you help humanity evolve? Mm-hmm. How, can, how can you transmit light and consciousness and energy? To other people and, and lift their and there's a there's a there's a stage on this path of the teacher which is these nine steps of service there's a stage in there where where you can you can communicate a technique now that's that's early but there's a later step where you can actually transmit an experience mm-hmm. and you can do that through a glance you don't have to use the technique anymore right you know it's beyond the technique and there's even a state where you can raise a person in realization in a way that is that is lasting. It's not just at the moment. You, that you can actually um, make a person evolve through your presence. Yep. <laughs> Amma, the hugging saint, is coming here in two days, and uh, she's a dem- she's a nice example of that. Um, you know, she's just having these brief interactions with person after person after person after person, thousands of them, and yet there's this really significant shift that takes place for, I'd say, everybody, although not everyone is aware of it to the same extent, and maybe it's the, the degree of shift is different according to one's receptivity, but you know, she's like this kind of generator that is charging up all the little batteries. <laughs> yeah. That's right. 
But one needs to be prepared, so I do think humankind can be prepared for that, and I think life on this planet would look very, very different. Yeah. And a lot of, lot of stress that we experience now could just be absorbed and go away. And mm -hmm. a lot of fear, you know, I do think what in this hemisphere we experience so strongly is fear. And we sort of would need some beings who vacuum up all the fear in us. <laughs> yeah. So that's, those are the engagements on the higher levels. This is one of the roles of a teacher, is to absorb the karma of the student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, if you take a sh uh, scoop of mud and try to dump it into a glass of water, that w glass of water can't really absorb it. But if you take that same scoop and throw it in an ocean, yeah. phew, it's just, it's just, gone. just dissolves. So you have to be an ocean. Yeah, Because what you hear so often from people say, you know, you know, he or she, they really have a good heart. Their intentions were good. They are really wonderful people, but, and I think if that can be lifted and transformed, then you have the person with the good heart, and we don't have to fill our prisons uh, with all these people who are actually innocent. They are all innocent in their deep beings, and we're just wasting lots of energies and monies. Yeah. So I think that's the future of it. But. That's just, yeah, a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> but it's a fun job. It's not an onerous task, you know? Yeah. It's a privilege, let's put it that way. I don't know that it's always fun. You know, I find it's sometimes hard work. Yeah. You know, when you travel, when you travel through the time zones and it's just... It's sometimes it, be, it gets to you, but I think it's an honor to do well, our, it. Our, I more is that. Our hearts ache. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But fortunately, we have the resources to to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's like the things that made a person that made you upset when you were a child don't make you upset anymore, and and uh, now we get upset over other things. <laughs> I think in your book you quoted the St. Francis prayer, you know, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And mm -hmm. I think you did. And uh, you know, so what you're saying here is that at a certain stage of your development, you become an instrument. That's your primary sort of function or orient orientation. You're, you're not living for yourself merely, but rather you, you become a fit instrument, to use the word again, for a larger purpose. Which mm -hmm. you could, which you cannot really effectively have been thirty years ago. You know, when you were in the right. peace movement and all that <laughs> stuff, you were doing you were doing your best, but there was too much sort of isolation and individuation to really. That's right. Yeah, I didn't know enough. You know, when I was in the peace movement, I was very idealistic. I'm still very idealistic, but I didn't understand enough about how things got to be the way that they are. I think one needs to really have a deep understanding of why things are the way they are before we can change them. Yeah. And I didn't appreciate that there were... what the forces were that created the world we had, that we have now. This, uh, I mean, I, I, worked for, I worked for some years in the financial, um, financial industry, and in especially specifically in a firm that developed the mutual fund, mm -hmm. first mutual fund, 100 years ago. Mm. 
And I discovered that mutual funds are sold. Uh, they're not sold on the basis of service, or, or which was originally the intention. They're sold on the basis of fear and greed. Hmm. And uh, the marketing is very clear. In fact, the whole way the, the mutual fund company runs is all it's all about fear and greed. And um, so one has to understand that in order to change it. You know, why, 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 is, why are mutual funds so... Why is that such a big business? It's because there's a lot of fear and greed in the world. But it is, it is actually, you know, Rick, the reason why that is is because the world wants to stay on state step three. Mm. Step three is harmony, where you don't have to worry and you just are taken care of. And it's uh, when you look at our chart in the book, step three is a very long s step, and uh, four is the heart opening, and this is where the brink of the world is. And it's the end of mutual funds. <laughs> you see? Well, it's a good thing I don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Is that metaphor? Because I'm like, why do we talk about mutual funds? And it's just because it's the end of that world. Yeah. So mutual funds is just a case in point, and there are all sorts of things which are symptomatic of a stage three mentality in the world. And what you're saying is that we're moving into a new stage, and perhaps a lot of these symptoms are going to shift, you know, kind of yeah. tumultuously perhaps uh, as the whole deeper shift takes place. Yeah. And you see that in the movie, Thrive, in the Thrive movie that you pointed to, which is a, which is a beautiful example. Yeah. Very, very yeah. pleased that came and, and that's where we need people, you know, evolved beings and a cooperation of spiritual beings, you know, to hold and live because uh, it's not easy to go through that step having experienced it personally. Yeah. You know, it is a, it is an even step, it is a down step, and it's an important step, and it's full of feelings. So I just wanted to mention that in our conversation here that uh, the culmination of our work as teachers is this is the development of a university. Mm -hmm. We have a we have an institute called the University of the Heart, which gives a two year graduate program. We give a the equivalent of a master's degree. We're not yet accredited, but we will be, and it's a master's degree in uh, heart studies. The application of the heart, how to how to use the heart to develop health relationships and accomplishments. And in these two years, we're packing in there what I learned in 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, because it wasn't taught in an, in an orderly system mm -hmm. by our teacher. He didn't teach that way. He taught in a mm -hmm. very sort of holistic way, but but it was beautiful. But it wasn't organized like that. And mm -hmm. so by organizing it. And making it very clear, and using biofeedback and and, and using um, objective tools, uh, we can take people through a, through a, a course of experience which would take really decades to go through mm -hmm. on one's own. See, and, and the reason we needed that long created universities because <clears throat> we have in the university retreat guides, we have web course teachers, we have mentors. Uh, we have, uh, um, what is it called, people who hold that whole school together. And we had to train them all because the system that we're using these people in had to be trained through the heart. They had to go through those nine steps. Is the university decentralized and online, or is it something, a physical location? 
It's 51% online. Okay. Because there's a special accrediting group that works with 51% uh, online classes. And then there's 49% in person, either through group retreats, which are scattered around the country and one in Europe, um, uh, also private retreats, seven-day private retreat is necessary, part of the program, and a 12-day, once-a-year uh, residency here in Tucson. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of personal time with us and with other people that we've trained. Group showers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> it would be fun. <laughs> Some fun, right? <laughs> right. I didn't mean to throw in a frivolous point, but you had mentioned that earlier. So that <laughs> uh, no, that's great. I, I really admire... Kind of, uh, I mean, it's, there's so many people who just sort of get up on a podium and talk and kind of relay their experience and go on to the next city, and everybody sort of gets what they can. But uh, I, th I think there's a something laudable about practical application and trying to systematize and make it so that people can really own something, you know, not just hear some words and perhaps get some upliftment, but really own it in their bones. Yeah. Well, this was wonderful, Rick. You know, we have to go on. I have now to teach a class in our university. It's just Good. right now. And they're oh. me. Okay, well, let me just take <laughs> one minute or less to just wrap it up because I have to go too. And uh, this is great, and people will know how to get in touch with you because I'll put a link to your site on batgap.com and uh, as well as like a you know, little bio about who you are and what you do and links to your books and things. And uh, also for those who've been listening or watching, if you go to batgap.com, Gap.com, you'll see all the other inter interviews I've done archived, about 180 of them so far, and a chat group that you can participate in to each week, you know, several hundred posts about whatever has been discussed in the interview. Uh, there's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they can, and the, you can sign up for an audio podcast uh, if you'd like to listen on your iPod while you're commuting or whatever. And one more thing, uh, email sign up if you'd like to be notified of future um, podcasts or whatever these are, f future interviews. You'll be notified by email about once a week if you sign up for that. So that, that about covers it. Well, thanks. Well, Rick, thank you so much. You're thank great, fun. terrific. I'm, I'm, so happy, I'm so happy to be able to talk to you because you understand what we're saying. You're just tremendously uh, with it and, and uh, inspired. I'm very happy for your work. And oh, in my you eyes, you contribute to thank, the involvement. You, you, you contribute to the involvement of the whole. So thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. Thanks. So, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Okay. Yep. Bye. Okay, bye-bye, Rick. Bye.